Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 313. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet. They are online at respectsextet.com, and there's a special offer right now, as a matter of fact. You can get 50% off any respectsextet.com album that you purchase if you use the offer code TJS, the initials of the jazz session. You just go to respectsextet.bandcamp.com, and uh, any of the things that you buy there are half off if you use that TJS offer code. So please do that. They are celebrating their 10th anniversary with a show at La Poisson Rouge in New York City. Tickets are now available, and you can find out more at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. He's online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Thanks to All About Jazz for carrying the show. You'll find it at allaboutjazz.com, and they have a widget which you can install on your website quite easily that will display the latest episode of the Jazz Session. And if you decide to use that, please let me know because I'll mention you in my newsletter. I spent the day a few days ago in New Haven, Connecticut with Wadada Leo Smith, which was a real pleasure, a real honor. He's just a fascinating human being. Uh, I wish this interview were about seven times longer than it is, but uh, there's a lot of good stuff shoehorned into the hour that we had. And in fact, we had an equally fascinating conversation while I was waiting for a cab outside the hotel that would have been every bit as compelling as what's on this tape. So uh, I certainly hope to... Uh, to get a chance to t- chat with him again. And I certainly hope to someday figure out that this is not on tape. <laughs> and it hasn't ever been on tape ever once, not even once, has ever an episode of the Jazz Session been originally recorded on any kind of physical device other than a hard drive. But I still call it tape because I'm old. So uh, without Leo Smith has a ton of stuff going on, as you will hear. Uh, on the recording side, he released an album on Cuneiform Records that's called Hearts Reflections with his band Organic. It's their second release. And we'll hear a track from that, and then we'll talk about a whole range of projects and hear more music uh, from this Hearts Reflections album throughout. So here's without Leo Smith. Thank you. 
my guest is Wadada Leo Smith. It's uh, such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, thanks, Jason. My pleasure too. Uh, we, you know, we have a limited amount of time, and there's a ton of stuff that you're up to these days, from mm. the Ten Freedom Summers to mm-hmm. the Hearts Reflections, and then uh, this winter a series of shows in New York, uh, mm-hmm. birthday shows, mm-hmm. shows in Europe. So maybe. Uh, Maybe we could start with the, the 10 Freedom Summers, and you could tell folks okay. about that project, which is just incredible. Well, it started out as a innocent little project that uh, I wanted to pay respect to Mega Evers, the uh, civil rights activist uh, out of Mississippi. And so I wrote this piece uh, that was simply just called Mega Evers. And, uh, but it was inspired by Leroy Jenkins. Leroy Jenkins had a trio he had just put together with Anthony Davis, uh, Andrew Sorrell and him. No bass, stuff like that. So he said, um, you know, I got this new ensemble. Why don't you write me a piece? And I looked around and thought about what I wanted to write, and I said that would do Mega Evers, and I wrote it for him. And um, they premiered it in uh, Italy at one of the festivals, and I was happened to be there, so it was kind of nice. That was in 1977, okay? <laughs> and over the years, I've committed different pieces to that project all on the idea that it's about this movement that took place for human rights in America but never as a piece that would have a lot of pieces in it. I I didn't think of it like that. I simply thought I would do a few things here and there. Okay, And then um, lo and behold um, uh, uh, considering August Wilson plays the 10 the 10 decades that he did, uh, I've seen uh, a couple of them live and read read the plays myself, you see. So I said, well, maybe this is something that I could really, like, focus on and go after. But I still didn't do it like that. I still wrote a piece here, a piece there, uh, kept some in notes. Then when Golden Quartet got together, 2000 was the recording, so 2001... Yeah, 2001, uh, we got invited to the University of Florida. And it was, I believe, during February. And uh, they, the guy there that was presenting us thought maybe that he could make a really big bang by having uh, Jack and I do workshops, Golden Quartet play performance, but he would commission a piece about the civil rights movement. <laughs> and, well, the usual story is that when the money comes up, it just doesn't happen. So he didn't do it, but I wrote the piece anyway. <laughs> uh, the piece is called The Freedom Riders Ride. At that time, I hadn't hadn't really named it. I just called it Freedom Riders, but I hadn't really like looked and thought about how I would name it. But it has three movements to it. And... I had made it so that um, the quartet would have various ways of being featured. Like one, like the middle section features the melody and the bass, which rarely that happens except, let's say, uh, so what in a few other pieces. But not often you have a bass lead. Um, I have had bass leads in a number of pieces, like, for example, Tabli. Uh, that piece is called Tabli. Uh, John Lindbergh is the lead melody in it. And also in... Uh, Freedom Summer, he's a lead melody in, in uh, the second movement of, of that piece. So I've had that before, so I, I wanted to do that also in that. I did it in that piece, which probably 
uh, now that I think about it, it was the first first time that I did it. You know? And so over the years, I started looking at this thing, and then I got this commission from Southwest Chamber Music, and uh, the guy's name is Jeff. He came to my house, and we sat down. I put all these scores out that I'd already started. Uh, he came there to commission me for one piece, and end up uh, commissioning me for four. Okay, uh, I'd gotten some com commission through uh, the uh, Guggenheim Fellowship when I was a fellow at Guggenheim. I wrote some of it. I was a fellow up at the Jurassic Foundation up in the Bay Area. I wrote two pieces up there. And after uh, after the Guggenheim, which was like 2010, I guess 2009, 10. After that, when I was working on those pieces, I knew then it would be a collection, you see. And um, started looking after pieces. Chamber of Music America uh, commissioned three of them. Uh, they commissioned with Little Rock Nine, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, and uh, Freedom Summer. What was it about that period that made you start to think, oh, wait, there's more here than just these well, individual pieces. Because I, I was born in Mississippi, mm -hmm. and I knew the uh, environment that all of these uh, efforts through that movement was trying to change. I knew what, what they were and how they needed to be changed. And I've always thought that music had the possibility of being able to express something that that the literary or the prose text cannot express. And often people ask me, well, how on earth are you going to express the civil rights music, mu movement in music with no vocalists? And they don't understand vocalists. Even though there's a text in the vocalist, the text itself actually serves as the way of rendering the notes and pitches within the composition, but it doesn't serve as meaning. Often we get confused, think that the meaning is in that text. And actually, part of the meaning is there, but the real meaning is is how the music and the text uh, 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 coagulate together and present this other problem that we can only really solve psychologically within ourselves. So, and, for example, you could read a text in a totally dry way and not convey the meaning, and and, even, and you could and you could also read it in a very beautiful way, right. And still not com convey the whole meaning. Sure. Because the meaning is like this, and when I tell my students at Carolines, they don't believe me, but it's okay. <laughs> the meaning is like this. Uh, um, if, if the text say, go down to River Jordan, and about 10 feet from the edge of the water is a little house that's, that's lemon. Okay. Now, the description is put there. Most people would bite the description and run. That's what they would know. But what has to be understood is how old is the River Jordan? Okay. Which direction does it flow in? How wide is the wide? What's the widest point of it? And at that point where that cabin is, that's, that's a lemon. What is actually in that area? And what is that lemon? That lemon is, 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 of course, it's yellow, but the lemon itself got all kinds of other characteristics to it. It's got a kind of semi-bumpy surface. The surface, if you squeeze it more, it shoots out this uh, 
really tart, something that if it gets in your eye, it burns the hell out of you. And it's got seeds in it. It's got a middle part. And it's got a it's got a top and bottom part. It's got wedges. It's it's a complex something. Words are, and I'm inferring that in every text, the words do not serve just as the meaning, but the research surrounding it mm-hmm. serves as the meaning. And in terms of pitches and tones, uh, that research can be enhanced by the relationship between those two characters. In my piece, there is no words. So people have to really use their reflection. I have some cinematic elements through video that's happening that will convey the meaning. And the biggest quality of conveying the meaning is the titles. For example, Brown versus Board of Education goes like this, Thurgood Marshall and Brown versus Board of Education. And that's a whole wash within itself, you see. Or, or the, uh, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. A whole wash. Because just to say or understand that the Civil Rights happened, I mean, the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, uh, if you go back, in 1957, Eisenhower introduced the Civil Rights Bill, and it was defeated by the man that did the 1964 Voting Rights Act, Lyndon Bain Johnson. He defeated him by getting all the Southern uh, uh, legislators to vote against him. You see, so all that history is is fixed up in the actual art object and the extra effort of research and the names of the titles. It's interesting too because the if you choose to convey the meaning through the titles and then the music that accompanies them, that also means for each person in the audience, mm-hmm. the piece has a different resonance yes. based on how much of that history they know or don't know or what emotions they associate exactly with it. And if if they look at my Ten Freedom Summer page on my website and click every link that's there before coming to that performance, or even they click it and don't come to that performance they will have a wealth of information about that movement. And particularly 
how it is associated with my with my my piece, because I didn't take everything that happened in that decade. Uh, I placed the context in the way that I thought I could best convey the musical meaning of those events. You see, uh, John Coltrane did, for example, the Birmingham bombing. Okay, I don't need to do the Birmingham bombing because there's nothing more perfect than his piece called Birmingham. You see, nothing more perfect than that. And there are other similar examples, you see. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it, the meaning is conveyed in a very multiple, complex, uh, uh, set of relationships. And when people talk, talk about putting it in context and stuff like that by just talking, it, it serves to get close to it. It's like getting to the door, maybe open the door, but not realizing that there may be 50 chambers in that one room or that one building. When you perform this music, do you give any spoken context to I the don't. audience? You I don't, don't know. And is that a conscious decision? That's a that conscious decision. I actually believe just like um, all those other great people like Miles Davis and uh, Eric Dolphy and just to name a bunch of them, they, they believe that the music itself was what it was and it was the object in which conveyed everything and that all the person had to do or have to do or should do is get in touch with that particular part of the the uh, performance and themselves and they would come away with some kind of meaning and that meaning like you say would have deep relationship to them far greater than if I could tell them just a story uh, about this movement you see or, or if I could just write about it because because Writing about it doesn't make you always reflect. It, it makes you think about something, but the reflective quality, the meditative quality, the contemplative quality, uh, that one-on-one that is, let's say there's, there's 200 to 2,000 people in the audience, you still on a one-on-one relationship with, with the, the art object that's being performed. And that's what's so beautiful about, about uh, uh, music. It's, it's non-discussive. You know, you don't really have to discuss it. It touches people that you don't know that it touched. Uh, as a performer, you don't know who it touched. And those people actually influence other people. So it has a chain reaction that goes much farther than the actual ritualized space of performing.
Can you talk about the emotional impact on you of performing this music? What it's like for you to play this? These uh, it's 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 it is emotional. I generally like to not do much on the day before I perform it, uh, meaning that I like to kind of reflect on it. And um, uh, so far, I've performed eight pieces out of this collection uh, over the last year, various places like the Library of Congress, the Library, Brooklyn Library. Uh, 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 I did it in New York at uh, La Plage Rouge and uh, uh, St. Louis. A number of places I presented two and three pieces at a time. And in Washington, D.C., I presented all eight of them at, at once. And um, each time I get ready to perform them, uh, uh, I realize something new about not just the technical part of it, but, but about how how I'm putting it together, that is how the ensemble rehearses the music. And out of that rehearsal comes a little bit more information on exactly what it's going to require to actually perform it in a real context with all 18 pieces, you see. I, I, can you talk about what the Washington experience was like where you did eight Oh uh, yeah, it seems like the that Washington would be experience was pretty fantastic. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, no one thought, including the people in Washington, D.C., that they would sell out the place. They didn't think that. They, they simply figured that it would be a nice concert and blah, blah, blah. But it got caught fire. It sold out very fast. And um, so we had 500 people in that, in that Calvin Coolidge auditorium, maximum, okay? And then there was 200 people in another smaller room watching it on video. Wow. And then we had just about 80 or 90 people show up in another room where there was an interview going on between me and the historian there. Um, oh, God, I can't think of his name now, but uh, I can't think of his name. But he's, he's, the, he's the Smithsonian jazz anthologist there. Hmm. Uh, and he did like, we did like, a, like an hour of, of, of talk around those pieces and also about the socialization of America and stuff like that. And so how long did it take to play the eight? It pieces? was, it was a concert, a whole concert. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, so now when you think about it, the premiere in, in LA at, the, at Red Cat, which is part of the Disney Center, uh, we're going to do six or seven pieces a night. Okay. And that means that we're going to start and go to the end. We're not going to have any mission. So it has a really full uh, impact on on uh, on the viewer and the observer in us. So that, so that, for example, I'm a firm believer that you don't need to climb a mountain twice if you climb it once. You know, if you get a good view of what's there, and then uh, when you climb it up again, it's not the same thing. You know, it's just not the same thing. Did you did you choose? events and people in the civil rights movement that had a particular resonance for you? Yes, yes. For example, um, uh, Fannie Lou Hammer. Uh, the thing that amazes me mostly about her is that she had a fantastic, magnificent voice. Tell she, people who she was. I think a lot of people... Well, she, she was an activist born in Mississippi. She was a sharecropper. She and her husband uh, uh, went and signed up to, to vote. 
and the the owner of the plantation drove up to her house and called them out on the porch and said, "Go down, go back downtown and unregister or get off my plantation." And they got a few of their little clothes and they walked directly off the plantation. And she went directly into this engagement of trying to make things better for uh, people in, in America. And not just, when I say better, I'm talking about the civil rights movement wasn't just about black issues. It was about human issues that affect all Americans. And um, it, uh, she went out and worked, worked in that area and also created, helped create the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And in 1964, I believe it was, they went to the National Convention and uh, they, the, the Democrats did not want to seat them. And it was a big fight. And she was so powerful, she would go out every day and meet the press, and the next day they'd give her more concession. And finally, they were seated. And even to the point where, where Humphrey and those guys planted two or three spies within the organization to try to take the leadership to keep them from being seated, you know. So she was a very powerful lady. Uh, was on the sharecropper in Stallville, Mississippi, which is not far from where I grew up, which is Leland. I mean, it's like um, maybe seven miles, maybe five miles, you know, not very far. Um, Mega Evers, of course, everybody knew his story because it was a really big, on his assassination, it was a big, you know, connection happening there. That, that, uh, everybody kind of witnessed. And, uh, uh, but what most people don't know is that he was killed minute after John F. Kennedy gave his, his address on, on race in America. And, uh, uh, his civil rights speech, which really angered a lot of people. And he was, Mega Edwards was shot minutes after that speech. Uh, so, so, that's the that's the kind of connection. Us, the, 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 these are really like uh, 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 Bessie Ross, Martin Luther King. It's almost like a southern bell that swishes across that that uh, movement. In terms of my pieces, the way I've selected them, uh, uh, the 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 the, uh, the Freedom Summer, Freedom Summer. That's the that's the uh, that's the piece that represents Cheney and Goodman and uh Schwarmer. Wasn't his name Schwarmer or something? Schwarmer, like yes, yeah. yes. That represents those guys when they went down there and the courageous uh uh excursion to unleash freedom and they got wiped out, you know. Uh uh so all these pieces are about somebody or some event and I've tried to show a relationship to the people in in this context related to events. Mm. Mm-hmm. How do we avoid making it seem like the civil rights movement is over or like it completed its task? How do we keep ah, it yeah. present? Well, I would remind everybody of the quote that Frederick Douglass made in the early, uh, maybe the early turn of the century, maybe somewhere around there where he said that uh, you have to be constantly active 
to make your government and your society free. And that once you win one, I'm paraphrasing, once you win one battle, that's not the end of it. It goes on, and it goes on for life. And then we could also paraphrase Bob Marley, who said the same thing, that it simply doesn't end because something has happened. It has to go on forever. And I think that's a lesson to us that in the context of a social structure where you have multiple ethnicities and you have the flourishing of multiple cultures, you have to, one, have to constantly be vision to make sure that these things, that is, these different areas of this community or this social structure is, is, is given the proper rights. And usually in societies where one group of people have had all the political power, all the intellectual power, all the economic power, and all of the social power, you have to be even more than vision. You have to be just completely, almost, almost, almost uh, engrossed in keeping it going. And it, it innovates at time, or it makes what you call it um, evolutionary jumps, and it has done that. It has jumped from the from the main efforts of the early civil rights movement. It jumped from there to the legal area, and now it has jumped into another area, an area that um, uh, uh, involves, I would say, not necessarily street demonstration, but it has jumped to an area of more personal uh, relationship. For example, um, uh, you never know uh, how bad it is unless you get out there and walk. You see, uh, I walk here amongst the Yale students. Some of them walk right over me, you know, because essentially they've been taught that they are the most important people on the planet. And the school's philosophy, I guarantee you, even though I haven't read it, is that they should be the next leaders and that, you know, this is the, this is, this is their world. Now, I'm, I'm an older man. I'm almost 70 years old. I would never walk into another human being, uh, or, or not share the street with them. You know? So my solution is now I just simply get out of the way. I'll walk in the streets if no cars are coming because it's an awful bad feeling to know that here young kids that would walk right over you because they don't see you. And I don't mean physically they don't see you. You don't, you don't exist. That's that invisible man that Richard Wright was talking about. You know, uh, they don't see you. And I'm convinced that there's a solution. And I'm convinced that the solution is easy and attainable. Uh, but what I'm not convinced is that anybody will listen to me. Because <laughs> most people don't. The solution's real simple. In order to end racism, sexism, or any of the schisms, is for one generation to be in the minority and not accept their privilege. That would end it. That would end it like just like that. One generation, you see. Uh, 
but it doesn't happen that way. It's, it's much more, and it's not, I don't mean, I don't want to say it's much more complex. It's much more difficult for me if I got a, a piece of bread that's that big, let's say as big as a small pizza, and there are like 10 people that needs to have a piece of that pizza. You know, do I slice the piece up in 10 equal parts? Or do I actually slice a piece in half and then slice it up in 10 equal parts and take it outside and give it to everybody else? It's so easy when you got the advantage to not really see things through. And that's what the problem is. Yes, things seem to change a lot more slowly. I mean, by the time my kids are, who are eight and five now, are my age, mm-hmm. things like it will seem ridiculous to them probably that we had a problem with gay marriage, for example. Exactly. Exactly. And, but unfortunately, it's going to take probably all it'll of the rest a long, of that generation. It'll, it'll, it'll take a point. long, long, long time and much longer because of the way in which it's looked at, you know, like, uh, 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 like various interest groups, the way that they look at it, you see. But all these things are not really problems amongst humans. I mean, uh, uh, it's easy to share what you got. You know, it's easy to allow somebody to have their own space. Those are not difficult things. But we make them difficult because we are attached to the privilege of being above something or someone. That's what's hard. Now, in art, uh, the artistic community, uh, there's still problems there, but they have basically solved most of it. You know, you find guys from Asia, uh, well, let me do it more individually, guys from Egypt, from, from, from India, from Texas, from Mississippi, from Bangladesh, playing in the same band, and won't have won't have a real social problem against it. If there's anything, they may have some kind of problem with the way one guy eat or dress or sleep or snore or something. But his rights or her rights, they they fine with it. You know, uh, most of the artistic community has has found a little bit closer way of of dealing with that issue.
this seems to me I was reading uh, some of your the, uh, the text from your book notes mm-hmm. and in that you were talking about uh, seeing each element in an ensemble as an individual improvising unit right not one weighted against the other or the idea of the rhythm section and the exactly. whole line out front exactly. and that seems to really tie into what That's you're talking the same about thing. yes yes because because history and tradition the way people understand them they have made the idea that an ensemble has some kind of something that leads it and you pick out the music there may be one part that have more of of a dominance than the other part does but if you take away all the rest of it what you got left? Nothing. So a long time they were telling us that it's Leroy Jenkins, Anthony Braxton and 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 uh, at one point the Art Ensemble that is Joseph uh, um, uh, Roscoe Lester Malachi uh, like like where's the um, where's the drums? The drums is is eccentric, it's crucial. You gotta have drums, you know. And that's not true because every instrument has this quality of drumming in it through rhythm. And a drum doesn't do anything else but that. So why do you have to have a drum? With Leroy, Braxton, and, and, and Smith, they used to criticize them like, well, you don't have no bottom. How can you have a band with three melodic instruments, a saxophone, a violin and a trumpet. Where's your bottom at? And then you don't have no drums either? You know? And you wrote that people were not only criticizing the lack of drums, but saying that without drums it could not be African, African music. music. Right, right. And and listen, I went to Paris in 1969. I saw lots of music performed on stage without drums. African music. And I also discovered something else that there. There are lots of that music had solos in them, and uh, 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 the the relationship with with voice and instrument was always a paramount something. And as, I'm sorry, relationship between voice, instrument, and dance always had a paramount something happening. Like they were inseparable. You couldn't say that the dance blah 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 blah, or the music blah 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 blah, or it was all one thing. And you couldn't pick it apart. You say to, to, to extract it, like for example, one would do, uh, and people do when they look at, you know, like song tradition. You know, they 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 talk about the voice and, you know, the compliments and stuff. That, that's no such thing as that. It's all one thing. You know, how would you how would you reduce the voice of Billie Holiday from from the works that she created in song and recreated? How would you do that? Can't do it. You know, her tones are just as important as one that's in the piano, one that's in the bass, or whatever instrument, and vice versa. The weight of that music is determined by the collective weight of the ensemble. Yeah. And yeah, that's the same thing, because ensembles are models of universes. And every leader of an ensemble has that model. Uh, one of the greatest ensembles, well, several of the greatest ensembles in the world, excluding the older guys who who had beautiful ensembles. I'm going to mention some young modern people like like the like the uh, modern jazz quartet, or like the uh, art ensemble of Chicago. But the but the notion about an ensemble being like like a complete universe, and those people can 
who, who leased that ensemble populated with their worldview. And I believe every one of those ensembles has something that we can glean from them, even in a casual way, that responds to life. Like, for example, the movement, the freedom movement that came up uh, through a bunch of people, but the main catalyst was was a little guy from from uh, Fort Worth, Texas, you know. And a lot of people say, well, you know, Anhet didn't start it out. No, he didn't start it all, but he did it the right way. He came out, and let me give you my analysis, how I tell it to my students. All of these great artists was sitting on this big rock boulder right beside this great body of water. All of them. Uh, there's there's uh, Charlie Mingus. There's Fas Navarra. There's uh, uh, Lenny Tristino. There's uh, all of them. They're all on there. You see what I mean, right? Mm-hmm. And one of them touched the water with the toe and they pulled it back. It's a little too cold. I was going to drench the hands through. It's a little bit too cold. And they're just sitting there, sunning. Long, along come this young, uh, brash, intellectual, intelligent, beautiful man from Texas. He walks up, takes off his clothes, and dives in and starts swimming. And everybody on the rock looks and see him swimming. They say, oh, yeah. Whoosh, they dive in and swim, too. Now, I like to tell stories with information in them. You know, my little book has some of that in it as well. But what the story does, it puts the context on what it is you're trying to show, and it allows it to be remembered in position, you see, with the story and the information. Now, what does that story tell me? It's tell me that Ernie Coleman didn't ask nobody if he should do what he did. He went and started looking himself for it. And what he found was important, and it it predates a lot of everything on the planet that was dealing with freedom, including, not necessarily predating, but including the efforts based around the Constitution of our United States. Because that notion of freedom is in-housed or embedded in, in our Constitution, you know. Uh, an ensemble constructed is the best model of democracy that you can find. Duke Elton said it. Many other people have said it. You know, I'm not saying something new. It's the best model of democracy because it has a leader like the executive branch and it has all these other qualities like the various parts of our government that works for the better cause of that musical object, you see. And in the end, what happens? Individuals still stand out. Collectives still become important. Individuals have the chance to be innovative, even if they only make one great solo in their whole life. That person get marks up with a legacy of being innovative or have contributed something to that body of music all within the context of the ensemble. Even if that person is not the leader of the ensemble, he or she has that chance 
And if you don't believe it, look at Louis Armstrong. Those first early um, of those first early uh, units he was involved in, they were led by his his mentors. But listen to what he was playing. It was it was new and great music from the start. <laughs> you know, so that's 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 kind of what that's what an ensemble really is. It's it's a it's an, it's it's a community uh, that has all the qualities that a society has, but the creator put those notions here in the ensemble to give us models of how we should look at things. Mm. If when the when when the civil rights movement came up, if in fact uh, uh, that music of freedom had been integrated with that music, with, with that with that movement, I think we'd have had probably far greater results. You know. And it, it seemed like there was a brief music. moment where some people tried to do that. I mean, I think of like Max Roach and Abby Lincoln and some of the work they did together. Oh, well, there they, were some moments where they they did do it, grabbed on, but it yeah. But but see, they wasn't they wasn't quite quietly embraced into the movement. Right. They did it as artistic elements to to show what that was. You see, and uh, in fact, in fact, that was one of the early people that showed that is that is Abby Lincoln and uh, Max Roach. Showed the quality of 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 music and uh, uh, its relationship to so, to the social uh, social uh, so to society, music mm-hmm. and society. They showed that relation clearly, you know. And they were international. They looked at South Africa and all other places, you know. Um, uh, that Freedom Suite, still one of the most important pieces of music ever in America, and you can only hear it if you listen to it on the record. That's exactly right, and and that shouldn't be. I totally agree. that should not be, you know. Uh, uh, to first hear that that freedom suite, uh, first of all, it stops your heartbeat, and then you cannot imagine how brilliant and loving these people must have been to try to show that at that early stage. That to me is pretty powerful. That stands right along with Bessie Ross, Martin Luther King, Thurgis Marshall, Fannie Lou Hammer. That stands right along, right parallel, right along there, you see. And if you go to Duke, Ellerton, same thing. Right along, right along by, by this, right along by this, same, same, same level, you know. Uh, he did nonviolent, uh, he did a lot of pieces, but there's one specific piece called Nonviolent Human Rights, Nonviolent something that Duke did, you know, uh, uh, Black, Brown, and Beige. All these are examples of, of, uh, the artistic, uh, worldview, understanding what the social worldview need and being left on the outside. And that's a fact. Even today, People still outside. We all are outside. Anna Coleman is outside. You know, uh, Cecil Taylor, uh, Muhor Richard Abrams. You know, the whole, we can name any of them. We're all outside. And we have spent our life as outsiders. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and truthfully, it didn't have to be that way. Uh, we could have been insiders. Meaning that if 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 our community had looked 
towards the most uh, advanced areas of music production and pull that into the fore, it would have been more powerful. Then pulling in just the just the, the religious music and the traditional guys that have always happened. And that's another thing that we need one generation of African-American people to break that cycle. Mm. You see, artists can't break it. It has to come from the community at large, you see. And that's, a, that's one that happens worldwide, you see. The edge of that art that can actually give the impact to lift things over this fence of opposition is constantly left out. That's that's the problem, mm. you know. Um, and hey, you call it for what it is. That's what it is. Shifting gears mm-hmm. slightly, but but tying into what you were talking about, you uh, recently released an album called Hearts Reflections with your band Organic, mm-hmm. and tying back to your idea of an ensemble as a, a model of a universe. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about what kind of universe you were trying to create with yeah, this ensemble? That one, that one, I was trying to create a create a universe that had uh, uh, a vast array of electric sound because at one point there was four guitars in there. Uh, on the record, and I only have three now because I figured out that I could get all everything I wanted with three. Uh, I has I have two bases: one the uh, electric bass and the upright bass, but both amplified into a way that that gives this uh, this power to them. And I got the cello there and uh, uh, drums and keyboard and trumpet. Now. What I, what I was originally, that band came out of another band that I had that was called Seven. And I had all lower strings and tuba in it. And the, the initial efforts was to make a band that I could uh, create these regions of, of, of levels of musical activity all the way up, okay. Uh, but 
when I got when I got the opportunity to to do a project in in Europe, I decided I would switch it to uh, what two pianos, one guitar. Nails Klein was a guitarist. Uh, drum, which was Phil Ron, Schoolie on bass, VJ and James Hurt on keyboards and piano. And I think that's 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 it. Yeah, I think that's six. Yeah. So that started that that organic. Okay. And, and now, where was this in terms of like the Yo Miles project chronologically? This, 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 this was, was this was like um, uh, this this is like years later. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, so 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 I I got this this zone. It's, it's in Paris. We're gonna do this event, and I decided I would name it organic, but they couldn't get away from. Keep calling it uh, what do they call it? Organic resonance. That's a record that Braxton and I did. Right. You know, <laughs> and then they went even further because the band. I was I was asked to do a project on Jack Johnson, and I accepted the project, but with condition. The condition was is that I would do three or four pieces from Jack Johnson, and the rest of them I would compose myself, which is what I did. And so it was this organic, resinous Jack Johnson. <laughs> I mean, it's something to make you want to throw up. Uh, but 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 that band. I also, cause cause see, I'm still thinking now. I'm not exactly where I want to go with it, uh, because what I'm hearing is something different than what I have. Okay, so. I decided at one point when I got ready to make the record, the first record, the one with uh, uh, Spiritual Dimension, mm -hmm. I decided then that I would get rid of everything and I would start new and that I would keep Firon, I would keep Schooley and I would add John and I would take Okium and I would add uh, three guitars to it. Actually, I had two on the original, two and my, and my grandson. Okay, and my grandson was only going to set in on one number that I had made for him, which is not on the record, okay, uh, because he was turning, he was turning 14, I believe, he's turning 14, either 13 or 14, okay. I was introduced to music by my stepfather at the age of 13. I wanted to introduce him in music at the age of 13, okay? And so I, we had rehearsed and fixed this one piece for him, okay? Which I wasn't going to put on the record. I just wanted to, it was a nice, easy piece for him, okay? And so we played the first half, and he played that piece. Then on the second half, uh, he was sitting in front, and I said, you want another, you want to play again? He said, yes. And uh, we played that same piece again. Then I said, okay, we, we're going to do another piece. You want to, you know, sit down or you want to, what you want to do? And he said, he looked me straight in the eye and said, I want to stay. And we did, um, uh, joy, spiritual fire joy. And he had never rehearsed that piece. The interlude before Michael Gregory's solo, is his solo. That's, he plays the interlude solo on there. Okay. 
And he'd never heard the piece, never played it before. Okay. So that pops your heart open. Okay. Well, I knew that that band with the guitars, the cello, and the basses, and the drums was it. I added Angelica to see if I could get some other quality into the music. And uh, it worked. It worked fine. Okay, uh, but the, but the whole essence, the importance of of the guitars in this context, and the basses, with with the, their range of what they can do, they can create this electronic sound. They can create this kind of like like uh, electric sound. They can create this whole buzz sound that I like. Uh, that's the quality of the group. You know, it's 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 free. It's creative. It's structured just like all the other music I have. And most people call it funk, but I would not call it that. I would simply say that it's just another way of looking at creating music. And it really speaks to, this band does have drums, but it really mm. speaks to what you were saying before that all these instruments have percussive qualities. Exactly. Because when you listen to this band, anybody could be taking that element at any exactly. time. Exactly, exactly. And, and they do. I mean, like, uh, uh, listen to it on, on that particular on spiritual, I mean, look, listen to that solo that, that, uh, uh, um, Okiyum takes on there. You know, really, I mean, stuff is bouncing off the bowl, you know. Yeah. 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 Uh, finally, can you talk about the uh, series of shows that are coming up in December in New York? And uh, yeah. Yeah. That one, that one's going to, I have six ensembles that I'm going to showcase over two days. And um, I wanted to to make a bigger spill than than usual where you come in and you do your birthday thing. Well, I'm turning 70, you know, and uh, you don't get to be 70 but once maybe, <laughs> you know, in your whole life. And so I decided I would I would do like a really big celebration and cover wide areas of my music. So uh, I got commissioned for a piece for voice, trumpet, and string quartet, which I just finished last week, uh, that's going to be on there. And then I got another piece, one, an acrosmation piece, that was also commissioned. That's going to be on there. Uh, so that's with the string quartet. Then I got my civil orchestra there. Uh, that's that's going to be now. It's turning out to be larger than I thought it would be. It's going to be now like about sixteen to seventeen players. Wow! Because people keep coming up and. They want to participate, and I'm I'm adding I've been adding them. You see, so uh, normally has one trumpet. I'm gonna have two trumpets, uh, uh, Ted Daniels and uh, uh, Taylor Hobanum. You see, and uh, gonna have two flutes, uh, one flute major, most of the flutes. Other is clarinet and flute. And Marty Ehrlich and uh, and Jamie, what's Jamie's last name? Baum, is that? Yes, 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 yes. You see. So it's a lot, it's going to be, and, and it'll have a lot of strings and stuff. And, uh, 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 then Golden Quartet. Then I'll make Golden Quintet. Uh, for the orchestra, I'm Brendan Bobby Norton. I may surprise people and do, uh, uh, get Dwight Andrews here and do a new Delta Creed, uh, piece on there. Uh, I just haven't gotten that far yet, but I may do that because <laughs> Bobby Norton is there. It's right there, you know. Uh, uh, and, and are all these shows at the same venue? Same venue. Which three is on each night. Okay. Uh, the venue is 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 the new roulette place in Brooklyn. Great. Uh, uh, I just they just opened up 
uh, I think last week. That's right. And uh, I hear that it's spectacular. I haven't gotten there yet, but I will get there to hear what the sound is like. Uh, uh, it's pretty exciting, you know, to to uh, have a new venue like that, particularly from people that's been uh, presenting for a long, long time. And so, uh, an organic also will play on there. Uh, a group that's called Embira that nobody's ever heard. Uh, we have a record that would be out by then. It'd be out by November. Uh, also called Embira, uh, Wadada's Embira. That's Fironak Love and Ming Xiao Fen. So it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a spectacular. And uh, 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 I'm gonna bring in a video artist that's gonna work with us on some of the shows, some of the, the some of the, with some of the, the ensembles. What does it feel like to kind of survey the unbelievable amount of music you've been you've been involved well, in? It 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 feels great because you know like I have a lot of music. I have I mean I. It's it's close to two thousand pieces. You know, I stopped counting a long, long time ago. That don't sound anything like each. I mean, that's the the beauty of it. You, know, yeah. you take any of these two ensembles and they yeah. don't resemble each other. No. I mean, except for the, I guess the vision unites them, but the the sonic qualities are no, 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 different. All, all, all different because because you're gonna hear like 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 this ancient people instrument in one of the ensembles, and you're gonna hear these beautiful strings in another ensemble. You're gonna hear these wind. And membranium forms and these other instruments. It's, 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 and then with my language, it, it kind of busts it out because my language is special. And, uh, I say that because, uh, I found a way to make an ensemble or make music without, uh, uh, without enslaving instruments that are not in C to C. And I talked just a brief minute about that. My theory is this. Instrument builders were smart and creative. They could have, in their line of work, made every instrument cover every range that was needed in the orchestra in C. But you know what they did? They made a bunch of instruments in all kinds of keys, like E-flat, A, D, B flat, G, F, you know, why did they do that? They did it for a particular reason, I believe. And I have to admit, I've only talked to them spiritually, not physically. They tell me that if, in fact, you allow any one of my instruments to sound in the original key, you will find something that no one else has. And that is this. If an alto saxophone sounds in E-flat and a B-flat trumpet sounds in B-flat and a C-cello sounds in C, what am I doing? I have tapped into or have activated three streams of musical uh, uh, projection. Three streams. The C-stream, the E-flat stream, and the B-flat stream. They're all different. If, in fact, I transpose the E-flat and the B-flat instrument to C, I have only activated the C spectrum of this vast range of musical quality out there. And I can prove it. Listen to Lake Biwa. It sounds like a huge ensemble. It's 
at the maximum in there is 12 pieces. Okay. And I got saxophone playing the same line as the, as the, uh, uh, uh strings. You know, I got, uh, trumpet playing the same line at some points in some places in there as a piano. You know, so what happens is, is when you activate this massive range or spectrum of, of the various spectrums, like the C spectrum, B flat spectrum, the E flat spectrum, F, G, and, and so on, you create an area of sound that's not been in the field before. It's not, it's not ordinary anymore because most of the people who have gone to school, and I went to school, they take them little pens and pads and they they work those little cards out so that so the B flat, the B flat throughout the orchestra in C. You know, I want a B flat on the E flat instrument, a B flat on the G instrument, a B flat on the F instrument, a B flat on whatever. I want it to be their B flat, not, not the C B flat. So that means everything. Uh, all music composed that way is just inherently polytonal, right? You have different key exactly. centers that are all stacked exactly. on top of each other. Exactly, and that's what the instrument ta- instrument builders was after. They understood that pantonal music was greater than tonality, and they, and none of the composers realized that. Even when people transpose instruments and make it pantonal, like some of the great composers did, it gives this ram of quality to to the music. But I could take that same piece of music and give it to my players, and it sound different. That same piece of music, it sound different, because I'm not going to transpose it. You see, uh, one of the great uh, uh, pantonists that we know, uh, some of the great pantonists, like like uh, for example Charles Ives, and uh, 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 his pantonist was was a much wider pantonality. It left room for, like, spacing in it, okay? Another great pantonality is, is Annie Coleman. Listen at that ensemble called Soap, soap Surge, or that record called Soap Surge Primetime. Tonality all, all matched together. B-flat, C, B-natural, A, A-flat. All within a cluster there together. And then you take him, He's in this tonality for a minute, and when he worked the idea and, and finished it, he's got another tonality waiting for you, and another one, and another one. So the ensemble is moving in parallel tonality, and he's evolving uh, uh, kind of like a satellite around various tonalities. You know, not only not only are people used to to writing and playing by transposing everything into one key, but mm-hmm. people are used to listening exactly. to music that way. Does that yeah. does yeah. the way that you're talking about writing does it demand more of your audience? It surprises them when they realize that it's not transposed because they can recognize that it's bigger. The sound is bigger. You see, a B flat on all those five instruments I just mentioned played together. It's not a unison sound. It's a much larger sound. It has something else in it. And because of the resonance of the instrument itself, it has a different sound. And because of where that B flat is placed within the spectrum, the vertical spectrum of stuff, it has a different sound. They say, and if the guy 
like in creative music, every guy has got his own sound. He doesn't strive or she doesn't strive to be this kind of one pitch, which you can't do anyway, but people strive for it. Like like the symphony, they all strive for that same quality of sound, but they can't do it anyway. Because when you listen to the orchestra really carefully, you find out that each one of the instruments got something behind it. They got a personality behind it. And them personality, they, they're not like absent. They right there playing that instrument, you know. So it's a futile attempt to do that. So I, I go for the, the fact that if I can get these instruments to be, to breathe and to create their own spectrum, sonic spectrum, I have a much greater chance of impacting my audience and the musicians, you see. Because I have guys say, hey, I can transpose this, you know, and I say, why? <laughs> <laughs> why? You know, he said, no, I can, I can, I can transpose it. You know, I'm, I'm good at transposing. But why? why? If I didn't transpose why would you want to transpose it? <laughs> <laughs> and I've had guys do that. Because when I get the score by, it's been transposed. You know, uh, in my music, the full score is functional. I don't write parts. Full score. There's a reason for that. You cannot put this music together that has nothing to do with counting. It has to do with curing. I cue through eyesight, through nods, through uh, the trumpet. I cue a lot of kinds of ways, but it has nothing to do with counting. Nobody ever have to count in my ensemble. Okay. So... If, if I can make this thing work without, you know, beating and stuff like that, I can realize something very different. And it's unique to, to where I'm thinking music in my head. And the person that's in that ensemble, if they pay close attention and they work hard and they stay there long enough, they'll learn something too. They'll learn something that, that they would not learn anywhere else, you know. It sounds like that's really about, I mean, in addition to your vision of what the music sounds like, it also sounds like it's a way to, to push people out of what they're used to. And it give equality to instruments, too. Mm. We made them. Why not let them be equal, too? You know, uh, we've made all these things we see on the planet, you know, through the Creator's help. We made all of them uh, through the inspiration from the Creator. We made all of them, you know, uh, a small, little, broken-down uh, willow tree is just as, just as powerful and important as a big, powerful oak tree, you know. Um, so that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm looking at how do you make the best art object and how do you maintain it in a way that it has the possible chance of being fresh, mm -hmm. you know. My guest is Wadada Leo Smith. It's been a, an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. I thank you for taking the time to do it. Thanks, Jason. I'm, I'm honored you came to do this interview. And uh, I'd like to say to my listeners out there, please listen to music.
That's music from Wadada Leo Smith and Organic and the album Hearts Reflections on Cuneiform Records. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. The show is member-supported, so really the sponsors are you. You can become an official sponsor and get mentioned on every single show by joining at the $50 a month level or the $500 a year level. But to just become a straight-up member, it's super easy. You just become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join for as little as 10 bucks a month. Or if you want to pay in one lump sum for the year, you can pay uh, $110. But either way, it's great if you become a member. It really helps keep the show alive. There are members in well over a dozen countries, closer to two dozen now, I think, and 30-something states in the United States. Please join them. Become a member. It's cheap. It's easy. Make you feel good. And it will help keep the show coming to you for years to come. And after you've done that and your your karma is back in balance and you're feeling good about yourself, why not shut off the computer and go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.